They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the and to prayer. Everyone was filled with the all the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Amen. Amen. Good morning, everyone. Really good to be back with you and to share in your worship this morning and to share God's Word together. This tremendous subject, the fellowship of believers, looking back to see how the early church chose to live together and to worship God. So we're going to go back in time um, to the first century. I want to go back a little less than that to begin with. I want to go back to 1830 and to the city of Dublin. And in 1830, in the city of Dublin, a small group of Christians met together in a hall for the first time. One of them had been refused communion by many churches around the city because he wouldn't join their formal membership role. Others had become disillusioned with the established church because they thought that the clergy had too much power, and in particular, they they, they were unhappy that only priests could administer communion. There were various others there as well. And they sang together praises to God, and people gave thanks in prayer, and then towards the end of their short service, they remembered the Lord Jesus by taking bread and wine together. Some of you may recognize that picture. It is of the early days of the Christian Brethren movement, which a number of us have grown up in and where our heritage is. But I'm quoting it not to promote it, although I could, but rather as an example of Christians trying to get back to the way it was when the church started. And I could equally have chosen some of the movements after the Reformation or the early days of the Methodist church, or the foundation of some of the free churches in Scotland. The way they went about things was different, but in every case they were saying, let's get back to the Bible and the simplicity of what we read about there. And in particular, let's get back to the way the early Christians lived as we read about it in Acts chapter 2. You see, in the Bible, we don't have a formal manual of how we should be as a church. Rather, we learn from the writings of Paul, often correcting inconsistencies and error in the church. And we learn also from what we can see of how the early church lived and enjoyed fellowship together. And the starting point of that is very much the passage we've read together from Acts chapter 2. Let's begin with a bit of background, uh, and then we'll look at what the chapter has to say to us. So beginning of Acts, I think you've looked at it already, there is the ascension of the Lord Jesus into heaven following his death and his resurrection. He ascends to be with his Father. The disciples choose a new apostle uh, uh, to be among them to replace Judas. 
We have the day of Pentecost um, and the, the great coming of the Holy Spirit onto the early believers. And then Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2, after which 3,000 people trusted in the Lord Jesus. And in a day, the Christian church goes from 120 people in an upstairs room to over 3,000 people meeting together. And the question then is, well, how did they continue together as the church? What happened next? And that's covered in broadly four chapters of the book of Acts. It goes through to around the middle of chapter 6. Look, as he writes Acts, has a habit of every so often taking a short break and coming to the end of a section and saying something like he says in Acts chapter 6, verse 7, so the word of God spread. And he says that several times through the book. And in chapter 6, verse 7, he says, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. So between chapter 2 and chapter 6 of Acts, we have a section of the book which is the early church in Jerusalem before it started to spread out um, as it began to be persecuted. And broadly speaking, the verses we've read at the end of Acts chapter 2, they set a framework uh, for this section. And then in the remaining chapters, we have some examples of how things worked out in the church. Some things that were very good, some things at the time may not have appeared so good, but all of them ultimately, Luke says, resulted in the word of God spreading. As I said, the verses we're looking at this morning are very much the foundation of that. I think we could divide them further, and we could see in verse 42, the first verse that we read, we have the principles on which the early church was established, And in verses 43 to 47, we have a description of some of their practices. Now, principles don't change. So the principles that the early church uh, worked towards should be the same that we as Christians today should also follow. Practices do change. Practices need to be adapted as situations change and as society changes. We don't change the principles, but we do adapt to some extent. So today we don't go to the temple courts in Jerusalem every day to meet together, for example. And we'll think a little bit about what applies today and what perhaps was particular to the early days of the church. But let's begin with verse 42 and some priorities, some principles of the early church. And the first thing was the apostles' doctrine. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. The word devoted themselves has come up before in the book of Acts, not with the same translation usually. In chapter 1 it says they all joined together constantly in prayer. The same word that's used for joining together constantly to devoting themselves is what they give their priority to. And their first priority was the apostles' teaching. Of course, Christians in the New Testament didn't have the whole Bible that we have today. They had the Old Testament part of it. They didn't have the New Testament. And in the very early church, it it was Jews who were meeting together, converted Jews, so they would have a good understanding of the Old Testament. But they needed to learn how it applied now. 
what difference Jesus made to what they had learned in the Old Testament, how the Old Testament pointed forward to the coming of Jesus. And the people who did that for them were the apostles, the men who had been with Jesus and had been chosen by him as his representatives. So the first priority for them as a church was to learn from the apostles and to understand more about their faith and more about Jesus and how he would want them to live. Now, we today don't have the apostles. We can't go to Philip or to Matthew and say, here's something that's come up. What did Jesus say about it? Can you remind me of that? But what we do have is our Bible. We have the whole Bible, including the New Testament, and that is our guidebook for today. We have the scriptures that the apostles wrote down, inspired by the Holy Spirit. And we should also devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching, to the scriptures, the Bible, the Word of God, as our first priority. Everything we believe, everything we do, we should look to the Bible with the help of God's Spirit and to say, what is it that the Bible teaches? And we want to be obedient to that. If we today as a fellowship of believers get away from that, we're very quickly going to go wrong. We're going to go wrong in what we teach. We're also going to go wrong in what we do and in our lifestyle more generally. We need to be devoted to the apostles' teaching as it is found today in our Bible. Second thing that we were devoted to was the fellowship. I couldn't possibly uh, give a better explanation of that than Drew has already given, so I'm going to cover that fairly briefly. But I think something that was key in what Drew said, what was the, that fellowship involves more than what we might describe as having fellowship today. We might go home sometime and say, we had a really good time of fellowship today, and what we actually mean is we had a good gossip together. And that is not what koinonia, what fellowship is all about. Uh, As we were learning earlier, it's about being willing to share together. It is about being stronger together. It is about suffering and rejoicing together. It is about being God's people, God's community, wherever he has put us. You notice in this and all the others, I put a the in front of the description. That is taken directly from the Greek. And I think in this context, the fellowship is not talking so much about what we do or what we might describe as fellowship. Rather, it is the group of people sharing life together. The New English Bible translates it, they met to share the common life. And that says to me, church isn't something you just do on a Sunday morning. You come here for an hour, you enjoy singing, you enjoy learning from God's Word, and then you go away and you get on with the rest of your week. One thing that's very clear among these early Christians is that they really shared life together. It's not going to be practical for most of us to meet every day to share life together in that way. And yet if we only come together once a week on a Sunday morning, and perhaps that electronically, remotely, we're not going to enjoy the fellowship that Luke is talking about here. It is very much about sharing life, sharing our faith together, 
and supporting one another, being stronger together. And I'd encourage you, if you're not already actively involved outside a Sunday morning, find areas of church life you can be involved in, or find time even just to go out with others in the church and to share together and to be able to laugh or to cry together and really to have fellowship in a true sense with one another. So the fellowship was the second key principle or priority of the early church. The third thing was the breaking of the bread. And again, I've kept the two this in this. Now, there's a slight debate around what is meant exactly here. Because in verse 42 and in verse 46, it talks about breaking bread. And in verse 46, you might think more naturally it's talking about sharing a meal together. They go to each other's houses and they break bread. They share a meal together. In verse 42, I think it more obviously refers to communion or the Lord's Supper or what we sometimes do call the breaking of bread. Now, I'm not sure that the difficulty we might have with that was a difficulty that the early church would have had because the two went together for them. So in Acts chapter 2, as the believers met together, they would share a meal together, and during that meal, they would remember the Lord Jesus. If you remember, that was also the pattern in Corinthians. It's clear the Corinthian church met together for a meal, to celebrate a meal together, and as part of that, to remember the Lord Jesus in the bread and in the cup. So I don't think we should get too hung up on whether Luke is talking about the meal or the, what we might call communion part of it. The key thing is the disciples met together very regularly. And as part of that, they remembered the Lord Jesus. They broke bread together and they remembered the Lord Jesus as he had instructed them to Again, in this church, there are very regular opportunities to meet, to remember the Lord Jesus. And if you're a believer, I would encourage you to come to these and to share together in the bread and the cup in remembering the Lord's death for us. And then the final thing, the final priority of the church was prayer or the prayers. And again, I think the definite article means it refers to praying together. Now, praying individually is essential for all of us, that we have our quiet time, that we spend time with the Lord Jesus, but also really important that we come together as a church and that we pray together as the fellowship of believers. And the early Christians clearly met together in the temple courts very regularly to spend time praying to God together to come to their heavenly Father with their requests and with their thanksgiving, with their worship, and to grow in their relationship with him, but also as they prayed together to grow closer to one another, as they recognized the common desires that they had and the common heavenly Father they could come to to pray to. Prayer is a vital part of every church. 
And again, I'd encourage you, whether it's in house groups or, or other opportunities, when you get the chance to come together to the meetings of the church where you can pray together and can bring your requests and your thanksgiving to God. So four priorities, four key things that the, every church should be characterized by. The Apostles' Doctrine, the Bible, adherence to the Word of God as our absolute authority. Fellowship, sharing life together, sharing the joys and the sorrows of life together as we together grow in the Lord Jesus. Breaking of bread, remembering the Lord Jesus and pondering on his death and giving thanks for it. And praying together, coming together to bring our requests to God as a church. So if these are the priorities, the principles, let's move on to think about the practices. And again, I've got four headings with that. I've just switched off. Switched on again. There we go. First one is power. Verse 43 says, Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. Now, it doesn't have an immediate link to verse 42, does it? It's not obvious from the principles, the priorities that we've looked at there. I think the key thing about verse 43 is that the signs and wonders the apostles were able to perform were confirmation that the message they were preaching was true. They had power from God, and that confirmed the message they gave. Broadly, we could say that people look at wonders and say, well, how did that happen? Uh, and they perhaps praise God uh, for what he's done. Uh, and signs have perhaps more significance. There might be the question is, what does that mean? What is God teaching us through this particular sign that he's given us? But both of them combine together to verify, yes, this is the truth. This is God's word being preached among us. Now, we today and historically don't see as many signs and wonders as there were in the early church. Not that God has changed, not that God is not able to perform such wonders, but he, he doesn't choose to, I believe, to the same extent today as he did then. But our God, as I said, hasn't changed, and he still does wonderful things in people's hearts, and as he answers our prayers, and we can see, yes, our God is still really powerful. He can do much more than we can ever imagine. There is still a, a real power in the church from our God, even though it may not be evidenced in quite the same ways as in the early church. Then the second practice was the believers providing for one another. Verses 44 and 45, all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Now again, this is one where we have to think, well, how does that apply to us? Should I be saying to you, if you've got a house, go out and sell it and give everything to the poor? Well, sometimes God might ask people to do that. Remember, the rich ruler who came to Jesus, and Jesus said, you're keeping the law in many respects, but one thing I require of you, go and sell everything you have and give it to the poor. That was a challenge to his faith and to his commitment. 
But it's fairly clear that even in the early church, people still had property. Verse 46 makes it clear that people had homes. So they had houses that they lived in and they probably owned. And I don't think generally God calls us today to sell everything we have and to share it among each other so that everyone has exactly the same amount. But let's not water it down too much. Because throughout Scripture, having a concern for those who are less well-off than us is very much part of seen as being part of our spiritual exercise of our worship of God. If I see a brother or sister in need and I don't do anything about it, then I'm failing in my spiritual duty towards God. And perhaps... Perhaps sometimes today we're just a little too proud to take help from others or we're a little too greedy to offer it. And it might be better if when people in the fellowship have particular needs, then we are able and willing to to help meet that need and the people with the need are willing to receive that help. I leave that with you as something that may have relevance and be a challenge to us, not having everything in common uh, uh, as the early Christians did, but at least when people do have needs, that they are met within the church. Third practice I've called participation. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They break, broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Now, again, I say what I did earlier. It's very clear that this wasn't a a once-a-week thing for them, that it was something they did regularly, they did daily at that point. They went to the temple, they prayed together. I'm sure they didn't take part in the sacrifices because these were now uh, um, irrelevant to them, but they explained their faith, and they also met in their homes, uh, meeting for meals, and also, I believe, celebrating the Lord's Supper. And there is the question again, how much do we participate in each other's lives? Not in the sense of being nosy and putting our our, our nose in where it's not wanted, but being there for each other and sharing together. I think the lockdown and the the COVID over the last couple of years has brought about a a, a bit of a divergence in the way Christians uh, interact with each other. Some it has brought a lot closer together. I can remember in my church and probably also in yours that, that we were very keen to make sure we phoned around everyone in the church to make sure they were okay and to see if they needed any help. And these communications, we also had online Zoom prayer meetings and so on, these times of getting together probably brought many of us closer as believers in the Lord Jesus. We had a greater participation in our life together. We had greater koinonia fellowship together. But at the same time, there were some people who almost lost the track of church, who chose not to be involved in these things and in some cases have chosen not to come back regularly to church services. And certainly if anyone here or looking online is in that position, I would encourage you to become involved again in the church and to share together with others. We are stronger 
together. We can build one another up in our faith. And if we've lost something of that over the last couple of years, let's regain it. Let's share life together. Let's build one another up in the Lord Jesus. And then the final practice is praise. Verse 47, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. The early church was a joyful church. People had glad and generous hearts as they praised God, as they served him together, as they enjoyed fellowship with one another. And it's still the case that a healthy church is a praising church. And that comes out certainly in our singing. It's been great to sing together some of the great Christian songs this morning. But it's more than that. It's a daily gratitude to God for all that he is and for all that he's doing for us. And when we have that attitude, when we have that praise of God, that is infection. Other people will see it and they'll want to know more about it. A healthy church is a praising church as well as a church where everyone participates, where we care for one another and where we experience God's power. But in closing, I wonder if you notice one thing that was missing in the principles. Now, I shouldn't say something's missing in Scripture, but if we're making a list of the principles of the key things, the priorities that we have as a church, is there something else we would add? And I think there is. We would probably add evangelism or outreach. And that would go alongside the four in Acts. So why is it that it's not there? Why is it that that the early church didn't give priority to evangelism? Well, the answer, I think, is they did, but they did it in a very natural way. They didn't need to set up special courses or or special gospel campaigns. I'm not uh, downing these. They have a great value uh, in our day. But because the Christians were just naturally sharing with everyone the faith they had and doing it without having to make any special effort, it says the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And the best evangelism comes not from special gospel efforts or special courses. It comes when we as Christians, as believers in the Lord Jesus, just very simply share with others what the Lord has done for us and what he can do for them. And yes, then we can bring them to a course or we can bring them to a special meeting and they can find out more. But I wonder again whether all of us today have that same infectiousness in our faith, that people can see the joy we have in the Lord Jesus they can begin to understand why we follow him and what the difference he makes in our lives. And they want to to come to know him. I started with a, a, a group that separated from the established church. Let me finish with a quote from someone who decided to stay with the established church, John Stott, um, who many of you will have been familiar with, a a Church of England vicar and a great Bible teacher and writer. He thought very deeply about church life and what it means. I want to quote from a book he wrote called The Living Church, and just to sum up the things I've been saying. 
Jonsaw says, looking back over the essential marks of a living church, it is apparent that they all have to do with the believers' relationships. First, they were related to the apostles. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. A living church is an apostolic church. In other words, it's a church which is based on the Scripture and what we learn there. Second, they were related to one another. They loved each other. A living church is a caring and sharing church. Thirdly, they were related to God. They worshipped God in the breaking of bread and in prayers with joy and with reverence. A living church is a worshipping church. And fourthly, they were related to the world outside. They reached out in witness. A living church is an evangelizing church. May our church have all these characteristics. As those who have their trust in the Lord Jesus as Savior, who enjoy the fellowship of God's people, are able to follow the example of the early Christians and to please God in everything they do in church life. Let's enjoy the koinonia that we've thought about this morning and let's glorify God as his people as the fellowship of his church in Edinburgh today. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this tremendous description of the early church, of the priority that it gave to yourself, to your word, to the fellowship of one another, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. We thank you for the way these worked out in practice as well and for the many ways in which you blessed it, particularly as people saw the joy of the church, as they heard what Christ had done for the Christians, and as they came to know him personally. Help us to be a church which is Christ-centered, and which, where we share life together as a fellowship of God's people, and bring glory to your name. We thank you for your presence as we've praised your, your name this morning, uh, as we've prayed together, as we've considered your word. We just commit ourselves to you now in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.